0: Hello, and welcome to Pain Management Beyond Pills and Surgeries, a conversation with Dr. Kanal Sud. I'm Dr. Chuck Vega. I'm a Health Sciences Clinical Professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of California at Irvine, where I also serve as Assistant Dean for Culture and Community Education and Director of UC Irvine's Program of Medical Education for the Latino Community. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Dr. Kunal Sud, who is double-boarded in both anesthesiology and interventional pain medicine, and serves as medical director at Germantown National Spine and Pain Centers. He also has a community following of over 2.5 million uh, followers on social media. This podcast episode is part of a curriculum designed to uncover primary care pearls from influential clinician specialists that you've likely seen in your social media feed. This is the first time PrimeMed has created conversational CME podcast episodes with influencers in our space, so I'd encourage you to check out the other CME courses within the curriculum at www.primemed.com slash vega vega. Okay, let's get to it. Kunal, uh, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Um, where, What and where do you practice and what are some of those con- common conditions that you treat?
1: Yeah, well, first, I just want to thank you, Chuck, for having me on here as a guest. It's really an honor, and I'm excited to open up about the world of interventional pain medicine. Hopefully, it's not too painful to our listeners. But um, So basically, I'm from Washington, DC area. I did residency in anesthesiology, which is a four-year residency. Uh, the first year is actually internal medicine, so I do have some experience with that. And then I did fellowship, which is one year in interventional pain medicine. And like you said, I'm currently a medical director at National Spine and Pain Centers in Germantown, Maryland, which is where I actually grew up. I didn't plan on you know, coming back home, but that's just how things work out. I think my mom kind of prayed for me to come back home, and that's what <laughs> happened. Um, common, common conditions I treat are chronic neck, back, and joint pain. But really, pain is a symptom, so I can pretty much see anything through the door. As long as it's pain, I can, I can help the patient with that.
0: So, yeah, the universe brought you back. Uh, home, which is always (laughs) nice to hear, it's a good story. Um, Tell me a little bit more about your take on interventional uh, pain uh, medicine and what kind of procedures you do.
1: Yeah, so interventional pain medicine is one of those kind of uh, enigmas where in my experience a lot of doctors, they just don't know what we do. So half the time when I'm talking to other doctors, I'm kind of explaining what does an interventional pain doctor do in our practice. And what I, what I kind of sum it up in is, you, you send a patient to us, number one, we'll help diagnose what's causing that pain. Because a lot of times I'll see patients, they've had pain for 10 plus years, and I'll ask them, what is, what is your diagnosis? And they'll just say, oh, I, I just have back pain. I have no idea what my diagnosis is. They've been on these with opioid medications, maybe NSAIDs every day. And I really try to start from square one with these patients and try to see what is still causing their pain. So number one is to kind of diagnose what's causing your pain, and then I develop a multimodal treatment plan, which can include medications, uh, minimally invasive procedures or injections, and of course physical therapy can be intertwined into all that as well. Common um, conditions I see are anything uh, spine-related, like cervical spine, lumbar thoracic, neck and back, and even joint-related. I do treat a lot of CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome, and fibromyalgia, myofascial pain. So it's really a wide variety of things that we treat now.
0: Yeah, that's remarkable and, and so necessary because um, we're getting, you know, as a society, we're getting older, trying to stay active. And these pain syndromes are just one of the most common parts of all of our practices in primary care. So, so that support is really important. Um, is there anything that you've learned through the years or things that uh, things that have changed that have surprised you or evolved in such a way that you, we could do better in terms of taking care of our patients with pain?
1: Yeah, so you know, pain, chronic pain might seem complicated at first when you're seeing a patient because you're like, oh, this patient's had pain for so long, how can I really help them? But again, the theme is what it was causing their pain, and it might mean multiple causes. It's not just as simple as saying, oh, it's just a spinal stenosis. They could have arthritis from their facet joints, spondylosis. They could have myofascial pain on top of that. They could even have fibromyalgia. So really kind of ruling out other causes as well. So a lot of times I'll send patients to maybe a rheumatologist to kind of make sure nothing autoimmune is going on. Maybe they need a psychiatrist as well because everyone with pain, it's kind of a a circle where they also have anxiety, depression, and it can make their chronic pain worse. So really kind of diagnosing that pain is most important. And then not just you know, masking that pain with medications, because a lot of times they'll be taking opioids, which, which is fine, there, there there are patients that will require opioid medication, I understand that. Um, maybe they'll be taking NSAIDs every day, which can have side effects too. But incorporating these minimally invasive procedures can also help them come off of these medications sometimes, like spinal cord stimulation, uh, the mild procedure, minimally invasive lumbar decompression. Uh, uh, rhizotomies, epidural injections, nerve blocks, joint injections. So there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of more ways to treat pain, and it's getting the variety is getting more and more every year, which is very exciting for me, and, and, and my patients as well. It's very rewarding seeing these patients get their quality of life back and kind of cutting down on these medications that have been taken long term.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I I really appreciate your holistic approach because uh, I find that uh, if you can get a team, everybody's got different resources available to their practice, but if you can get a team involved uh, with pain management, uh, including, you know, say mental health professionals, absolutely important to get a diagnosis too. If if you're really having trouble isolating it in your practice, getting a specialist involved, but I would hope that the workup uh, is done in the primary care office, so at least uh, you can look at some of the studies and deduce maybe there are two different or three different causes of pain here. But uh, but I think that we should establish those before they see you. And then I really love the idea of getting off uh, chronic medications, uh, particularly NSAIDs, which uh, you know certainly can be harmful, especially for the who's experiencing chronic pain. They're older, they have more chronic illnesses, and therefore they could have uh, more trouble. Um, Yeah, let's get into uh, uh, talking about each other's specialty. Um, (laughs) We focus (laughs) here in PrimeMed on PCP education. Um,
1: What are some? Maybe maybe you can teach me too. Oh no, no!
0: I'll give you. I'll give you first serve. So uh, tell me some of the misconceptions that PCPs have about pain management.
1: Sure, Um, and this is just from my experience in Germantown, Maryland. You know, it might not be countrywide. Um, but one of, one of the, when I'm talking to, to intervent or, um, internal medicine doctors, one thing they kind of tell me is, oh, you only prescribe medications, right? Uh, but that's only kind of one of our tools. So like we were just talking about, there's, there's other options and to really incorporate that multimodal treatment plan and, you know, what you're gaining by sending to an interventional pain doctor, as opposed to, you know, maybe other doctors that don't have as many tools, is not only can we prescribe medications, but we can also do that epidural, we can do that nerve block, that sympathetic nerve block, that maybe that spinal cord stimulation to cut down on the medications. I think that's the new theme. And, you know, especially with like the CDC guidelines and all of that, they're really bringing to light that we should not just be throwing medications at patients and calling it a day. Um, So no, that is not what an interventional pain doctor does. We don't just prescribe medications. Um, And number two, is a lot of times I'll talk to uh, primary care and they'll tell me, oh, I, I send a patient to a surgeon first, like an orthopedic surgeon or neurosurgeon first. But then you think about it, most of the patients don't require surgery, right? So in my experience, and just in the past month on average, or looking back at the past year on average, I would say every month I might refer two patients, if that, to surgeons. And the reason is most patients will get better with conservative management. So why would we send the patient to the last step first when you could send them to an interventional pain doctor first? Maybe they'll get better with that conservative management. Most likely, if not, we can also we can always refer them to that surgeon. So it's kind of annoying for the patient when I see them in my office. They're like, oh, I've had this pain for six months, and I saw a couple surgeons, but they're not really helping me because all they're offering is surgery and medications. But there's an in between that can get them pain relief even quicker. So when I do an epidural injection, for example, it might take them five days to get better, but that's five days compared to six months that they've been been sitting around. And then once they have that pain relief, they can do that physical therapy much better. They can get their quality of life back. So even just kind of supplementing with the physical therapy will give them the best chance of recovering from that disc herniation, for example. So I kind of look at my job as kind of helping patients avoid surgery. And then third um, is, do we always prescribe pain opioid medications? And the answer is no, we don't always prescribe opioid medications. So I would say a majority of my patients that I see, I am actually not putting on opioid medications now. So I'm first starting with non-opioid medications like NSAIDs, uh, maybe a neuropathic medication like gabapentin Lyrica, maybe a muscle relaxant like flexoril. And then I'm doing that minimally invasive procedure, uh, which is very low risk. And, you know, is there a place for opium medications? Yes, maybe it's in that elderly patient that's failed medications, physical therapy, can't get surgery. She's tried injections, not helping. Then yes, that Norco 5 or that Percocet 5 Tramadol, once or twice a day, if it gives them a quality of life back, you know, we've exhausted all our options. So yes, I do prescribe opiate medications, but that's not all I do. That's gr- sorry if I went on a tangent. But. No, no, get on that soapbox, <laughs> preach, brother, preach. Uh, I think that
0: that's uh, that's outstanding, and it's but it's just funny to me because I just think of it uh, very differently. As you said, it's it's very much like provider specific in terms of you know how we perceive other specialties and and how we might process our patients uh, through those specialties. Uh, but yeah, I use pain management particularly for those invasive procedures. I certainly can't do those in, in my practice. I don't, I don't have the training or background. I can prescribe medications, including opioids, pretty well, but it's for those patients when I'm thinking, okay, let's limit those medications, which could be potentially harmful. Uh, and patients don't want to take them. There's side effects. It's, it's you know, they, they get in kind of the sick role, which, um, you know, nobody, nobody really likes. Um, and if you could take care of it with an intervention, um, and that intervention lasts, you know, potentially months at a time. You know, you've really made a difference and yeah I certainly think and it's just interesting to think about the pain ladder where you start with some of the more benign treatments and and lifestyle and mindfulness and 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 those things which are, are good across a whole different range of conditions um, so yeah sending to a surgeon is that is that last stop but you're uh, you know you're providing a great service as that that middle ground which really helps uh, a lot of people and and you're absolutely right I think most people can can uh, then you've got uh, a team taking care of you including Including a pain specialist, including your PCP, maybe uh, one other specialist or a mental health specialist, and I think that's a very powerful combination for improving, as you say, quality of life and um, and reducing disability. So that you know, with that in mind, when do you think uh, the PCP should be sending patients to you as a pain specialist? What when do you want to see them early, later? What do you think?
1: Yeah. Well, Chuck, I mean, first I just want to ask you: Are you sure you haven't done fellowship in interventional pain medicine? Because it sounds like you already have. I moment. would. I, hey, I did our minor <laughs> surgery unit. I ran
0: it for, for ten years, and it was it was my 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 chance to do procedures. So it was very enjoyable uh, and a nice if and for those PCPs who haven't done it or can't kind of left procedures behind. Procedures are always nice. They kind of balance out your schedule. Uh, so you, you know, so you get yeah, a little bit yeah. of hands-on stuff. So that's what I'd say.
1: Right. Yeah. No, I'm I'm impressed. And to answer your question, uh, when should we send that patient to an interventional pain doctor? Um, Well, really, any patient that we see with pain, we can see even from the start. Um, But I would say, you know, if the patient has failed, like, you know, conservative management, like medications, NSAIDs, you've tried the gabapentin, Lyrica, you've tried the physical therapy, and they're still having a lot of pain, and they're not just getting through that physical therapy, then you can send them to us, and A, we can help with that diagnosis, and then B, we can offer that that procedure, or that injection that they haven't tried yet, to try to limit those medications, limit those side effects from those medications, help them get through that physical therapy. Because what you really don't want is you don't want the patient acute pain to turn into chronic pain. And what they define as chronic pain is is usually pain over over three months. That's what the CDC uh, defines chronic pain as. And then then you're going to be you know it's going to be a much bigger challenge to get that chronic pain to go away because the body kind of gets used to that. They get used to those medications. They might get depression, anxiety after that. So you kind of want to. I, I would say the earlier you send to us, actually, the better. If the pain is uncontrolled. Now, if their pain is like a three or four, and they get better with NSAIDs, Tylenol, and stuff like that, then you might not need to send them to us. But if it's been a couple of weeks and you're, they're still struggling and it's affecting their quality of life, then you can you can send them to us at that point. But really, any point, any point in their journey, you can send them to us,
0: right? And I think it's—I really like, obviously, conservative therapy is, is what I have, and so I'm going to stick with that conservative therapy. If we think about, you know, recovery from acute back pain, if you just work with patients over a couple months and do exercises and analgesics, they're going to get. Even, heck, even if you don't do anything. Um, majority will get better in a couple of months, so uh, so we definitely want to stick to patients. And I would really uh, strongly recommend to the audience: it's I, I document very closely what's been tried, that because I don't want you going back and trying stuff that uh, pe- that didn't work, or even potentially could be dangerous. If patient had maybe had a you know upper GI bleed with NSAIDs or something like that, or had a you know really negative effect uh, with a neuromodulating agent. So um, so yeah, I, th- I would I think it's incumbent upon Us as PCPs to to try to exhaust all those conservative options. Usually, that process does take months, um, and then do the right workup, get the diagnosis, as you say, and uh, and then make sure we communicate that. And I think it's imperative for the specialist to read that uh, because I have had patients who came back on the exact therapy that didn't work six months ago, and I'm like, okay, how did that? How who who thought it would work now as the as the pains even got worse and progressed over time, right? So. Um, let's talk, uh, switch gears, and let's talk a little bit about bias in healthcare. And um, you uh, recently brought awareness to how women's pain is often dismissed. And uh, certainly women, um, people of color, also have a, a history of under treatment of pain. Uh, but you were specifically uh, uh, discussing uh, relation to IUD insertion. Can you tell me more about uh, this yeah. and what the research says?
1: yeah yeah chuck so it's it's actually funny when you're making videos on social media i don't know if you have experience making videos um, but just from reading people's comments it kind of opens your eyes to to what you didn't know about from a patient's perspective for example that that's been going on in medicine and some things need to be changed and this is one great example of that uh, where women were just kind of tagging me in these videos because they knew i'm an anesthesiologist and by background and also a pain medicine doctor and just kind of explaining that they're getting these short procedures with their gynecologist. And it's not all gynecologists. I know, you know, some some will give the, the proper anesthesia and pain control during procedures. But there were some that were commenting that, you know, for IUD insertion specifically, they were not getting local anesthesia. They were not even being warned about how painful these procedures can potentially be. And I it just brought that to light. And then I started digging into it. And it wasn't just a couple of women, it was thousands upon thousands upon thousands of women commenting this and and nobody taking it seriously, which was like, okay, let's take a step back as doctors. Sometimes we have to kind of figure out, are we doing, you know, giving our patients the best treatment by making them comfortable during procedures. And that is part of our job as doctors to also, it's not just to do a procedure because anybody can do a procedure and learn how to do a procedure, but it's an art to do a procedure while making the patient as comfortable as possible as well. And I think that's where, you know, anesthesiologists that have become pain doctors can kind of help and help the medical community. Um, And especially with IUD insertions, you know, you can give topical anesthesia, you can give local anesthesia, you can give Valium, oral Valium by mouth, you can give pain medications by mouth, give IV sedation. So there's a whole spectrum. So where I think the change needs to happen is having a conversation prior to the procedure, because each patient is going to be different. And ask the patient, run run the procedure through the patient and say, is this something you think might be very painful for you? Are you anxious with needles? Does me doing this procedure this way, will that make you very anxious? And then coming up with a plan. And it's not going to be a cookie-cutter plan for every patient. Each patient will require a different kind of anesthesia. So half my day is doing procedures. And this is exactly what I talk about in my office before I even take them to the procedure room. Saying this is the epidural injection. This is how I'm going to do it. Will this make you anxious? Do you think this will be too painful for you? And then we come up, yes, you need local anesthesia. Everybody gets local anesthesia, actually. I don't I don't do any procedures without local anesthesia. Do you need Valium? Do you need IV sedation? So I have done epidurals with IV sedation because some patients are just so anxious with needles that they require IV sedation to do the procedure. And that's going to be the same with gynecological procedures as well. You know, it's not it's not just gonna be for the procedures I do, but procedures as a whole, men, women, any procedure you get, you some patients might require more anesthesia. And speaking about the research, there was actually a research paper which looked at IED insertions and looked at patients that got local anesthesia versus those that did not. And I guess, not surprisingly, the patients that got local anesthesia felt less pain during the procedure. I'm not sure why we need a research paper to tell us that because that's how local anesthesia works. Um, but I'm glad we have that data because it just makes sense. It's numbing the area. Now, some some people might argue, oh, the local anesthetic might hurt more than the procedure itself. Possible, but there are ways to decrease you know, the local anesthetic injection as well. You can mix local anesthesia with bicarb to make, make the sting sting less. You can add topical anesthesia and then do the local anesthesia injection. Um, so, there are ways to decrease even the pain from that local anesthesia as well.
0: Well, I, I really appreciate that approach. And I'll just share a, a personal anecdote. Um, I was speaking to a urologist about, about getting a vasectomy, and he told me that, you know, a lot of uh, it, it, it's going to hurt. And, uh, you know, what he recommended is that a lot of guys will just, you know, bring some headphones, you know, play music and just power right through it. And I'm like, uh, hell no, like I, <laughs> I don't think so. And what what sound what? Yeah, yeah. It's and it's just like it's a see. Yeah, it's, it's I don't know what even soundtrack you use for a vasectomy, but um, but yeah. Uh, maybe I could just you know reach uh, you know, my bare hands and pull out my vas deferens right now and you know just just grit it out. Uh, and so yeah, I think it's a much kinder approach. And when we think about the procedures I mentioned earlier in our office we absolutely should be thinking about patients anxiety and comfort and keeping that uh, top of mind and and again particularly for Populations that are at risk that have traditionally suffered that bias in the healthcare system, and that does include women, and that does include people of color. You you treat everybody as individuals, and you know, and make sure that you you take their values and preferences into account. But maybe some extra effort with those populations, because we know the the data is out mm-hmm. there that the, that we undertreat pain uh, for those particular patients. Right. Um, let's right, put exactly. let's put on our glasses and, and look into the future a little bit. What do you think about the future of pain management?
1: So this is what I'm very excited about, and that's part of the reason I went into interventional pain medicine. It's one of those specialties that keeps changing every year. Uh, New procedures are coming out every year. Um, So the future is going to be more and more minimally invasive procedures and kind of cutting down on the medications, the same theme. Um, For example, one of these procedures, I think I alluded to it before, it's called the minimally invasive lumbar decompression or mild. And now this is covered by Medicare. And basically what this procedure is, is through a scope, you can take out ligamentum flavum from the spine, and you don't have to cut them open or anything. It's not a surgery, and it kind of decompresses that area. So that that old uh, man or lady that's kind of having that shopping cart sign, they have that spinal stenosis of neurogenic claudication, we can help them now. And when before they couldn't get surgery... And maybe they don't even need surgery, because I would always recommend trying a, a less invasive option prior, prior to a more invasive surgery. And I'm really getting good results with this. You know, the, Even the research is showing, even two years out, patients are having more than 80% relief They're standing up straighter, walking farther. So I think that's the future. More and more procedures like this are going to keep coming out. And it's our job to keep learning these procedures and offering them to our patients.
0: Wow, that's great. Yeah, it's, that's very exciting, uh, less invasive, Faster recovery times, uh, better better outcomes. Um, right. Uh, let's close up now. If you could just uh, maybe uh, share three strategies or tips for managing patients with chronic pain with the audience, uh, what would they be?
1: Sure. So first, I would say you know definitely listen to the patient's history. Because a lot of times when I'm seeing a patient in my office, just from their history, I can diagnose their pain. You know, even without that MRI, without that imaging, I use the imaging to kind of confirm what I'm thinking from their history and physical. So, you know, we don't have to just say, let me just order these imaging and then we'll see what it says. You can you can try to make a diagnosis and confirm it with imaging. A lot of times what's gonna happen is you'll get that MRI back and it's gonna show spondylosis, it's gonna show spinal stenosis at multiple levels. But it's our job to kind of line it up with that mm-hmm. imaging from their history and physical, because you could have changes in MRI that don't necessarily cause pain. So that's where the you know the art comes in from lining it up and saying what on this image is causing pain because not all, those, all that pathology is gonna be causing pain. Only a percentage of it is. So that's number one. Um, number two, of course, sticking with the theme of diagnosing the patient's pain, make sure we have a good diagnosis and if, if we need help to refer them out to specialists like a neurologist, rheumatologist, interventional pain doctor. Um, and then number three, always start with the least invasive option first. Because like you were saying, Chuck, like better recovery times, less in, less invasive, um, and it's just better for the patient.
0: Yeah, for sure. I really appreciate your patient-centered approach and you taking the time to, uh, to speak with me today. Um, it's been great talking with you, Dr. Sood. Um, and uh, for our audience, uh, thank you as well for uh, listening to this session. Don't forget to visit uh, wwwprimemed vega to listen to the other CME podcasts in this curriculum featuring influential clinicians and specialists, a lot like Dr. Sud. Thank you very much and be well, everybody.